0: Um, all right, it's been quite a journey, hasn't it? Two years in the Gospel of John, two great years, in my opinion. Yeah, because they've centred on Jesus, haven't they? Gospel means good news, and for two years, we've been listening to good news about Jesus. Uh, how could that be bad? Uh, Now, this doesn't doesn't mean it's always been easy listening, has it? Because Jesus is God and he commands obedience. And there are times when we listen to his gospel that we have been challenged to conform to the will of God. But it's good news because Jesus has done everything necessary to grant us eternal life so we can face the challenge of his word because of grace. So, after two years, why are we doing one more sermon together this morning from John? Well, I wanted to summarize the entire book for you, sort of to bring the whole book to you together in one perspective, one cohesive whole, so that it's easier to understand. Now, I'm highly doubting that anyone here heard every sermon from the Gospel of John series. Um, Yeah, look, I know I didn't. Um, Yeah, I didn't think so. Uh, So what we want to do is just sort of tie it together for you all, and that's what we're going to attempt to do together this morning. I believe that the Bible is God's Word, inspired by the Holy Spirit, completely and utterly true, and the sole guide for our faith. God, however, in his providence, allowed for individual personalities and thinking of the various human writers to come through in the books of the Bible. So they wrote for a purpose and according to a plan. So, for instance, the Gospel of Luke, Luke arranges his Gospel geographically. He chooses his stories to be steadily getting closer to Jerusalem and the crucifixion. So he arranges it like you would kind of a classic story where everything's building steadily towards that ultimate event. And that's what Luke does. Now, if we look at the three years of Jesus' public ministry, he was in Jerusalem, out of Jerusalem to Galilee, to he wrote, but Luke steers it all, all true, but just arranged to function in a certain way. So John likewise has a purpose and vision for his gospel. And he tells us precisely what that is. You have that up on the screen behind you, John 20, 31. These are written. What does these mean? These particular stories that John has selected out of a whole array, array of things that Jesus did, these ones... I've put together and written down so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Amen? That is the purpose of the Gospel of John. Out of all of the events of Jesus' ministry, all the things he did, all the things he taught, John has selected these so that you can... Believe, you can know that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing, be saved. Purpose of John. So all we're going to do together this morning is summarize in four points how John goes about achieving that goal. Four points of how John goes about showing us that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, we will have life. First point, number one. John provides us with a full understanding of Jesus, right? A full understanding of Jesus. Right at the core of John's purpose that you would believe is to first show you who Jesus truly is. What a big task that is, right? But that's at the core of what John sets out to do. Now, this is the first point I'll make this morning. It's also the biggest point I'm going to make, but... If you learn anything from the Gospel of John, it's that Jesus, who took on flesh and who walked on the earth, was God. Right? Remember the start of John. In the beginning was the Word. Now, what does that mean? Well, let me make it really easy for you to get this morning. What do you do with words? Yeah, everyone's kind of mumbling. You express thoughts, don't you? Express something. Words express something. In the beginning, God expressed Himself in the Word, who took on flesh. Right. That's the easiest way to understand this. In the beginning, there was the expression of God made known in the personhood of Jesus Christ. Right. If that's what you want, a simple way to remember: In the beginning was the Word. What does that mean? The Word is the expression of God made known in the Son, Jesus Christ. What an incredible theme of John, and it is relentless throughout his gospel. Jesus is not simply a great moral teacher, a great example, a prophet. No, he is perfect God, second member of the Trinity, and made known to us the fullness of God in Jesus. We'll look at a few of the ways that John does this. Many times we learn that Jesus always says and does what the Father tells him. He is perfectly obedient to the will of the Father in every way. For instance, we read in John 12, 49, For I have not spoken of my own, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a command to say everything I have said. So I've not spoken of my own, but every single word that Jesus says is from the Father. So Jesus, in personhood, is functionally subordinate to the Father, while in essence he's 100% God, that's the Trinity, remember? Three in person, one in essence, so we've we just got to always remember that. So he's functionally subordinate to the Father in personhood, 100% God in essence. But Jesus is the Word, the expression of God made flesh. And everything Jesus says reveals the Father perfectly because he is the perfect expression of God, the Word made flesh. Which is why not only does he say everything the Father commands, it's also why Jesus could say in John 14, 9, Jesus said to him, have I been among you all this time and you do not know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? The Word, the Son of God, is the perfect expression of God himself. uh, Throughout John's Gospel, God is revealed to you. Do you want to know more about who God is? Look to the Son. Right? The perfect expression of God made known to you in the Son. That is what John wants to drive home again and again and again. Okay? Jesus is God in the flesh. Do not miss that. Now, John revealed that not just through some of these things that Jesus said, but in some other systematic ways as well, which we're going to zero in on here and have a look at. So the first one I want to look at is up there on the screen, the seven I am's. Now, we mentioned some of these, but we're just going to mention them quickly, the seven I am's. Now, firstly, what does the number seven mean in Scripture? It means complete, right? Something that is completed. So for instance, the seven churches of Revelation is not literally about those seven churches. There was way more churches than that across the region at the time. Those seven churches represent the church of all the ages. Hence, the message to those churches is a message to all churches of all time. They are a message to us this morning. So the seven represents complete the complete Understanding of churches is shown in Revelation for us to understand and wrestle with. So that's what seven means. And so John intentionally puts seven I am statements. I'll read through them really quickly. I am the bread of life, John 6.35. I am the light of the world, John 8.12. I am the door, John 10.7. I am the good shepherd John 10:11 I am the resurrection and the life John 11:25 I am the way and the truth and the life John 14:6 I am the true vine John 15:1 Now what do these statements mean? Well, I'm sure you're aware that at the burning bush, when Moses asks God for his name, God says, I am, right? I am who I am. I am the beginning. I am the end. I'm the Alpha and Omega. I'm the uncreated one. I simply am. Now, Jesus, who is the perfect expression of God, made known to us, says, I am the bread of life. I am the light. I am the door to God. I am the shepherd over the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. In other words, throughout John, Jesus is saying, I am the perfect expression of God, and I am the way to God. I'm the light. I'm the door. I'm the vine. I'm the shepherd. It's me, right? So John's saying, Jesus is God, he uses the name of God and he applies the name of God in a way that says, I am how you get to God. Now, there are two other I am statements which are not used as metaphors but as titles. One, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am from John 8, 58. Right? Before Abraham was Born a long time before Jesus, I am. A title. He's given himself the name of God. And lastly, when the mob came to arrest Jesus, whom they were seeking, and they asked for Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth and Jesus replied, I am. Your Bible probably says, I am he. The he we've added. It doesn't, it, Jesus responded with, I am. Okay? Okay? So twice he uses the title of the name of God for himself. Don't think this is accidental. John wants you to understand that Jesus is the perfect expression of the Father and through him you will have life when you believe. That is the message. So along with the seven statements of Jesus, which reveals he is completely God with the power to save, John gives us seven signs. Seven signs that point directly to who Jesus is in a physical sense, in the power and authority that he has. So we'll quickly look at those. Seven signs. Turning water into wine, John 2, 1-11. Cleansing the temple, John 2, 12-17. Healing the nobleman's son, John 4, 46-54. Healing the lame man, John 5, 1-15. Feeding the multitude, John 6, 1-15. Healing the blind man, John 9. Raising Lazarus, John 11. So it is seven signs that paint the complete picture of Jesus being the full expression of God. Now, some of you who are now, as I said, experts in John are saying, hang on, Sam, there were more miracles than just those seven you've mentioned. That's true. But to qualify as a sign, the event had to be done in public. It has to be in John's Gospel, and it has to be designated by John as a sign. So, if you add those things up, John says it's a sign, it's a public sign, uh, and it's in John's Gospel, there are indeed seven of them. Seven Ims, seven signs that say Jesus is the complete and perfect expression of God made known to us, so that we can believe he's the Son of God and by believing have life in his name. Amen? That's what John wants us to get a hold of, church. That's what he's structured so carefully throughout this gospel that you would know for sure that he is the Son of God. That's the first one, a complete and full understanding of Jesus. Number two, the finished work of the cross now john spends a lot of time showing us who jesus is but he doesn't just leave us with jesus being the perfect expression of god so that we can know that fact but he is also the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world how by being sacrificed John shows us the divine majesty of Jesus and shows us that only Jesus could die and pay the penalty of our sin and declare that the debt was fully paid, sin has been dealt with, it is finished and we can have life forevermore. John has put that in various ways. The reversal of what we would expect He's shown us the depth of who Jesus is and then declares that he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Question. I love barbecue lamb. Anyone else? Come on. There's some good hands going out. If you are, you're not an Australian. Just bring it out there. All right. I especially love slow-cooked lamb. Lamb shoulder, bone in. Anyway, uh, I could get stuck there. So good. I can honestly say this though. As I have cooked, said lamb, all of these meals I've made, I have never once thought of laying my life down for those sheep. Never occurred to me. Never will. It's an absurd thought, basically, isn't it? I know. There are hippie weirdos out there who think all animals are equal, uh, including ourselves and blah, blah, blah. Wrong. The Bible says that humans are uniquely made in the image of God. Uniquely made in the image of God. We are not the same as animals. We are His image bearers. And we have been given dominion under God over the earth. Right? We are not the same. And therefore, because we are his image bearers, because we are higher than the animals, it is nonsensical for me to think that I would lay down my life for a sheep. And yet the vast gap between myself and a sheep, the gap between Christ and me is so much greater. Because he created both the sheep and me. He is, as John has explained, almighty God, ruler of all, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the I am. And John says, this is who he is, and he lays down his life for the sheep. That's absurd, church. Do you feel it? Every bit as stupid, it's more stupid than me laying down my life. That's the gospel that John wants to get across to us. That the one who created all is the good shepherd who gives up his life to pay the penalty of our sin. How great is our saviour. How great is our saviour. John puts it other ways, announced by Gamaliel, he is the one man who dies for his nation as a whole, or the one man whose life is given for the world, or the perfectly obedient son, even obedient to death on a cross. The one who through his death we have peace. The one who through his death we have life. The one who through his death we have life forever with the one who paid our penalty and we get to share in his glory. The Gospel of John presents Jesus as the full expression of God and then shows him in humility laying down his life for us so that we can believe and have life in his name. This is why the seven signs of John finish in chapter 11. From chapter 12, we have the triumphal entry and movement to the cross. So we have the knowledge of who Jesus is, and that knowledge leads us to understanding what he did to give us life. Up to chapter 11, Jesus, complete God, fulfilling the signs. Chapter 12, the one who is complete God, laying down his life for you. That is the Gospel of John, that you would believe and have life in his name. Point number three, the work of the Spirit. John outlines for us that Jesus will depart. He is going back to the Father and back to glory that he had before his incarnation However, John also makes it very clear to us that we will not be left alone. Sorry about this weird echoey thing. There is another who will come. John uh, 14, 15 to 16. If you love me, you will keep my commands. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The Holy Spirit will be sent by Jesus after he departs and he will bring conviction. He will teach them the truth of what Jesus has said and write it in our hearts. The coming of the Spirit is shown by John to be the pivotal turning point that John himself stops clear of. What do I mean by that? Well, John records the failure of the disciples to understand and grasp what Jesus is saying more than anyone else, right? So John's gospel records failures of the disciples more than anyone else. In writing his gospel with a purpose to help us believe, John thought, what I really need to show them to help them believe is to show them how useless we are, right? Strange tactic, anyone think? does sound a little odd, doesn't it, that that's what John did? Well, the book of Acts was probably written around A.D. 60. The Gospel of John was probably written about A.D. 90. It seems very likely that John knew about the book of Acts when he wrote the Gospel of John. So John tells us of the coming of the Spirit. More importantly, back in John 3, he tells us that we must be born again of the Spirit. We're all born of the flesh. We're all born physically, but the flesh also is used to describe our sin nature. We're all born separated from God, spiritually dead, alive to sin and the things of this world, but dead to God. And Jesus says we must be born again of the Spirit. That means we have to kill the old flesh nature. We have to deny it. We don't accept its rule and then we are born again of the Spirit. We are filled with the Holy Spirit and given life. How? By believing that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. By turning away from the flesh and putting our trust in Jesus so that we will have life in His name. So John shows us even with the disciples, who are directly taught by Jesus that they must be born again. John shows us continually how little they understand. He shows us continually how often they make mistakes. He shows us again and again how they fail. Because I believe John always knew that we would get to Acts chapter 2, the coming of the Spirit, being born again and see the change in the disciples from that point on. Do you remember in Acts when they faced the Sanhedrin who had just had Jesus killed and they are being told, John and Peter, to stop talking about Jesus anymore? This is the men who were such failures in John's gospel. Now they've been born again in the Spirit and this is their response from Acts 5. We must obey God rather than people. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had murdered by hanging him on a tree. God exalted this man to the right hand as ruler and saviour to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Oh, church, can you see the difference? In men who have given up the world, who have died to the flesh and its desires and now have life in the Spirit, they don't fear man anymore. They're filled with the Spirit. They know glory awaits and they boldly proclaim truth. Fearless. Bold. Do you know the same Spirit who transformed these men is the same Spirit who fills you when you were born again. I ask you in all seriousness, do you come to church because mum and dad do? But you are not changed, not transformed, still weighted down by the cares of the world? Then you are in the flesh. You are like the disciples in John, awaiting Pentecost. You need to truly crucify, crucify your flesh and its desires, know who Jesus is, and by believing and trusting in Him, you will have life in His name being transformed by the Spirit. That is the Gospel of John. That is who we're meant to be. That is who we're called to be, and that is who we will be if we are being changed by the Spirit. Fourthly and finally, the church. The evidence of the spirit of being born again in John's gospel is the church. Now, John doesn't go into ecclesiology, and that's just the simple, that's a flash word for saying how we do church. He's not interested in that. He isn't interested in church structure. He's not interested in the songs that we sing John is interested in the transformation that the Spirit brings in how we relate to one another. The unity of the body of Christ is central to the Gospel of John being brought about by the work of the Spirit. Having the same love for one another in the church that the Father and the Son have being known as his disciples by our love for one another. John says this is the church. This is what it looks like. This is how people who are born again of the Spirit will act. Not to be saved. They act like this because they are saved. And they are being transformed. Now, once again, it seems a little weird again. John's off track. If he wrote the book so that we could believe, now John here has such a focus on this is the result of believing. How does that link to his overall purpose? Well, John tells us in John seventeen twenty-two to 23, I have given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one, listen, that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Don't miss this. The culmination of the unity and love and us having the love of the Father, the culmination of that in John's eyes is that the love that we possess here, the deep unity that it brings, which cannot be broken. When non-Christians experience it, when they see it and feel it, when they know that it's true, their response is, there is something here. There is a depth of love and unity that is not from the world. And if it's not from the world, then it must be from another. And we say it's because Jesus has transformed our lives. And when they experience the love and unity of Christ among his people, they can't deny it. That's what John is saying. They experience otherworldly love. They experience otherworldly unity. They experience that otherworldly care. And they can't put their finger on it, but they know it doesn't exist outside there. And in here they're told it comes from Jesus, and they cannot deny it. think there are a few things more heartbreaking than a church in disunity. For, please listen, it is more than conflict. It is more than factions. It is people whose pride and stubbornness would rather stain the name of Jesus than show his love as they have known it. It's people who would rather declare to the world, no, it's not true. Jesus is not from God because I'm not happy. He couldn't change my life and he can't change my heart, so he certainly can't change yours. That is what a church in disunity declares to the world. They would rather sit on their pride and stain the name of Jesus. Then, in humility, consider one another better than themselves. That's a church in disunity. And that's the sin that they are declaring. The Word of God says we should outdo one another in humility. For your humility is a direct consequence of your understanding of God's grace, forgiveness, and mercy. The price Almighty God paid on the cross for your sin brings you to a point of knowing you deserve nothing. And you would rather forsake your rights and just extend love than beseech the name of Jesus. That's the gospel in the church. You might sound, it probably sounds like I'm angry. I want to pause and genuinely thank you, church. The last few years have been tough, haven't they? And there have been many opportunities for disunity, for fracturing the body, ruining our witness and failing to show that the love of Christ, who came from the Father, is true. Can I say, by and large, you have continued to love Christ, and through Him, one another. Not perfectly, but enough that in this church, we have vaccinated and unvaccinated who love one another. Liberal and Labor voters who love one another. You even embrace the New South Welshman as your main Bible teacher. We can even tolerate, perhaps not love, those who think Nescafe Blend 43 is something you can actually drink. Right? The reality is, sincerely, all jokes aside, I commend you, church, Firstly, it's Christ and the transformation He has brought in your heart. That you have continued to love Christ and in doing so, have loved one another. Praise God. Keep it up. Keep it up. Out of genuine care and concern for one another, but also that we would be a light to this community. That when people walk in here, they taste something which the world cannot explain. Jesus is the Son of God, the full expression of God. And He will transform you and give you a new life in His name. And that is seen in the expression of the church. Knowing who Jesus truly is leads to understanding how His death on the cross pays the penalty of your sin, Knowing Jesus paid the penalty of your sin leads to being born again of the Spirit and having your life transformed. Having your life transformed leads to a gathered church that reflects the love and glory of God and declares to the world it must be true. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you will have life in His name, and that is how John has done it. Church, do we believe it? pray we do. And I pray it calls us on to witnessing for his glory. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for its clarity. How could we not spend two years in the gospel of John and not simply declare, Jesus, you are God. You are amazing. You are worthy of worship. And Lord, in humility, you bent down, came to the earth and paid the penalty of our sin. Lord, all we can say is thank you. Praise you. Lord, may we live in light of that. Lord, may the love that sent you be the love that transforms us. That we would dwell in unity and point the world to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ.